break, everyone? Fun writing those papers and everything? Did people actually write them? Is ever, or are you taking the Wednesday? Actually, I got a couple over email. Whoa, check it out. Okay, so um, when you leave, you should give them to your section leader, which is to say either um, me or Courtney. Um, and uh, that's great. Good. Did you, did you like it? Did you have fun? <laughs> you don't look ecstatic. But it's, it's, it's the joy of the course. It's the icing on the cake of literature. You get to write yourself and join the great conversation. No, you're not buying any of this? You should buy it, though. All right. Um, so today, one way or another, we're going to um, abandon Paradise Lost. Um, the great poet, I think I quoted this for you before, but I'm not sure. Uh, the great uh, French poet, Paul Valéry, um, said, um, as a writer of poetry, that a poem is never finished, it is only abandoned. Um, and that's true for any great work that you're reading as well. So uh, today is the day we will abandon Paradise Lost, much as Adam and Eve had to abandon Paradise itself. Um, so today is Paradise Lost, Lost. Um, and for Wednesday, you should read Pope's Rape of the Lock, um, which is in the um, Norton Anthology of ma the Major Authors, which is um, one of the books you... Uh, may have considered buying for the course. <laughs> um, you can get away with uh, not doing it in that edition. What's nice about it is, is it has notes and a headnote. Um, but you can easily find it on the web. So The Rape of the Lock. Um, the background is the little bit of background that you need. Um, I'll talk about a little bit more on Wednesday. But it's um, that a party went bad. Um, when um, a somewhat impetuous and silly young man decided that it would be um, a fun idea to clip a curl off the um, hair of a woman that he was um, possibly going to be involved with at this party. And she got very angry, and her family got very angry. And um, they were both, both families were friends of the poet Alexander Pope, and um, Pope sought to intervene um, by writing a mock epic. And what the mock epic is, the reason it's great is not um, because there was this party and this moment, um, because, but because Pope turned this really pretty trivial moment. Rape there means the taking away. It doesn't mean rape as in rape culture, although there might be continuities. It simply means taking something that doesn't belong um, to you the way a raptor does. Um, and so he takes away a lock of her hair. Um, and um, Pope takes the occasion to write a mock epic, which is a kind of um, funny version of Paradise Lost. One major, major difference, two major, major differences. One, it's a lot shorter. Um, two, it rhymes. Um, it's also a whole lot funnier. Um, Paradise Lost Although it has um, its occasional chuckles, like justly has thou them in derision, Father, um, and probably the funniest part of Paradise Lost is when um, Raphael blushes, when Adam says, um, even I have sex. Um, I mentioned this uh, last time. Even I have sex. But what about you angels? You're supposed to be happy. But I, do angels really have sex? And um, 
Raphael's answer after he blushes is to say, well, without love there's no happiness and you know we're happy. Um, and then he says, and also, and this is the place where it becomes a little bit questionable, he says, when you guys have sex, you're kind of prevented from having total merger by the fact that you have bodies. Whereas angels, we're all spirit. So there, there are no barriers to um, our complete interpenetration, which makes you wonder, as Obama said about snorting cocaine, whether Raphael actually gets the point about sex. Um, remember Obama said that inhaling was the point after Bill Clinton said he didn't inhale. Um, so the question is, um, if you were all spirit and you were having sex with another being who was all spirit, would that count as sex? Um, Raphael thinks yes. Um, Milton thinks maybe, maybe. I'm not sure what Adam and Eve would think about it. But at any rate, that's a funny moment. It's, <laughs> I don't see you rolling in the aisles, but okay. Um, that's Milton for you. Um, all right, so um, one of the things we were talking about um, in class last week is what it means for Calliope to, or the week before last, um, what it means for Calliope to be an empty dream um, and why that matters. And a couple of people talked to me about this after class, so I just wanted to um, say a word more about that. That what um, happens at the, after the fall in Paradise Lost is that Adam um, decides that he is going to enter the world of mortality, the world in which we are only a dream, in which life is but a dream, as the great song has it, row, row, row your boat, um, that um, it's a world in which things are not permanent, in which things disappear um, and evaporate into nothing, as dreams do. That's what makes dreams empty. Um, that's what the emptiness of a dream is. And Adam decides to follow Eve into that world of the, um, the dream world, the emptiness of dreaming, rather than staying in the true transcendent um, divine world made for him in Eden by God, the world where he talks to angels and talks to God himself, um, or at least the Son of God, on a daily basis. And instead, he leaves all that behind for a world of death, for a world of mortality. Um, and he does it because you could say that Eve has made herself into an empty dream. Um, and in the same way that Calliope's pain is that she cannot defend her son because she can't do anything because she is an empty dream, that's what Eve has done um, with herself as well. Now, that is talking about Paradise Lost, and this is what I think was a little bit confusing to people. That's talking about Paradise Lost um, in terms of that world, the world that Paradise Lost takes place in. Another way to understand this, and I think it's um, not an actually different way, but a different perspective on the same way of understanding it, is that the question about literature, the question um, which arises for Milton when what he decides to do is to rewrite truth, that is Genesis, what he officially believes is truth, 
to rewrite it as epic, to rewrite it as literature. Um, and, of course, the beginning of Paradise Lost is all about how previous epics, how Homer and Virgil and Greek and Roman mythology are fictions. Um, that is the first thing he says of them, is that they are fictions. But now he, too, is going to rewrite Paradise Lost as a fiction, or rewrite the book of Genesis as a fiction, um, possibly as a play, ultimately as an epic. And in rewriting it as a fiction, he's committing himself to literature rather than truth. And that is the crucial, I'm going to, I'm going to repeat myself for emphasis, he is committing himself to literature rather than truth. That's a crucial distinction. Truth is what happened Literature is our imagination about and of characters who are not real. Even if Milton believes in a real Adam and Eve, and it's um, questionable whether he does, but even if he does believe in a real Adam and Eve, it's also clear that the Adam and Eve of Paradise Lost are invented figures. Um, there is a great moment in Paradise Lost where they're first described in which Milton says of them that they are, this is a famous crux in Paradise Lost, um, that they are the happiest pair that ever since in love's embraces met. And that's an odd formulation, the happiest pair that ever since in love's embraces met. That is, Adam and Eve are the happiest pair since Adam and Eve. Adam, the goodliest man of men since born. So Adam is the handsomest, the most um, prepossessing of men born since Adam. And then, to really underline it, he goes on to say of Eve, the fairest of her daughters, Eve. Eve is the fairest of her own daughters. Now, obviously, that doesn't make sense, but obviously it's not that hard to make sense of it. Adam is the um, goodliest man ever born. Eve is the most beautiful woman ever born, and the only problem is that Adam and Eve were not born. Um, but Milton really does push it, and three times he pushes it farther, so that his Adam and Eve are humans, descendants of Adam and Eve, as any fictional character would be a descendant of Adam and Eve, as if you were to talk about um, um, any of the characters in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, any of the humans in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and say of them as they are called that they are daughters of Eve or sons of Adam. They're fictional, so in some sense they're not daughters of Eve or sons of Adam, but in the fiction they live in our world, and therefore they are descended as we are from Adam and Eve. So you could say there's a kind of convention that fictional characters, too, are descended from Adam and Eve, because fictional characters, too, live in our world. Fictional characters, too, belong to the population of humans. And um, King Lear is a son of Adam. Cordelia is a daughter of Eve, etc. 
So what that would then mean is Milton is insisting on the fictionality of his fictional characters. They are not the real Adam and Eve. Far from that being some sort of step down from Adam and Eve, a descent morally as well as a descent um, biologically, the descendant, the descent of Adam and Eve, as Darwin might almost call it. Um, it is, I think, for Milton a step up. One of the things he says, and we didn't stress this at all, but um, now I will, one of the things he says in the invocation to book one is that his song with no middle flight, his adventurous song, that word adventurous is a word that's going to apply to Eve as well. It's Adam's critique of Eve that she is adventurous. But Milton says of his own song that it's adventurous and that his adventurous sort, excuse me, his adventurous song with no middle flight intends to soar while it attempts, and remember that Satan's word, attempt, he tempted our attempt and wrought our fall. Milton says that his adventurous song will um, intends to soar while it attempts things Unattempt, while it, excuse me, he says, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. So when he says that, that Paradise Lost is going to pursue something unattempted yet in prose or rhyme, by rhyme he means poetry. He doesn't mean rhymed poetry, that's just a short word for rhyme. Um, that the poetry that hasn't attempted to do what he's doing is Homer and Virgil. He's comparing himself and saying he's going to try to outdo Homer and Virgil um, and Dante. Does he? Well, not quite, but it's a reasonable, it turns out to be a reasonable comparison for him to make. That's the rhyme. The prose that he is attempting to outdo is the Bible. So Milton is saying Paradise Lost, in Paradise Lost, he's trying to write the greatest work ever. And he includes in the works greater than which he wants Paradise Lost to be, he includes in those works not only Homer and Virgil, but also the Bible. So Paradise Lost, the fiction is pursuing a greatness that the truth, the alleged truth, the prose truth of the Bible, um, is not quite up to. So this brings us, this is a long way to um, a very, very direct question or a very, very direct datum of literary experience. That question, that datum, um, it's a question we were looking at in King Lear when we were looking at Dr. Johnson's um, view of King Lear versus Addison's view when we were looking at Tate's Lear versus Shakespeare's Lear. That question is the question, why do we feel for fictional characters? How is it? that we can find the death of Cordelia unendurable when Cordelia isn't real? How is it that we can find what happens to Lear just so awful that it's close to 
unthinkable. So that question, the question why we care about fictional characters, the question why fictional characters can be figures whom we mourn, can be figures whom we feel great sorrow for when we know they're not real. One answer to that question is something like this, and this is now putting it way too um, quickly, but it's the way Milton puts it in, in Vocation of Book 7. It's that ultimately we mourn for them because they're not real. Ultimately, what a fictional character becomes is her own unreality, her inability to be real. It's as though, and here's a touch of literary theory for you, it's as though the way fiction works. Um, some of you will know the uh, great moment in, um, in uh, The Importance of Being Earnest where a character says that um, she's reading a book in which um, the good people get rewarded and the bad people get punished. And then she says, that is called fiction. Um, so fiction is when good things happen. And that's Oscar Wilde's little joke in The Importance of Being Earnest. Um, but fiction is also where bad things happen. And those two ideas that in fiction good things happen, in fiction bad things happen, um, actually tell you something deep about the way fiction works. Not about what it means, but about the way it works. And the way it works is something like this. The unreality of the characters is something that gets rolled into our very experience of the fiction. The unreality of the characters makes it possible for us to be glad at the end of Pride and Prejudice that Darcy and Elizabeth get married, because we don't say to ourselves, well, they may get married, but of course that was um, over 200 years ago, so they're long in their graves. Um, so what do I care that they had a happy ending? No, we have the they get to live happily ever after experience of a happy ending in fiction. If characters live happily ever after, they only do so because they're fictional. Real people do not live happily ever after. Real people die, and before they die, the happiness, no matter how great it is, turns out to be transient. Other happiness may come, but happiness is always transient. But fiction, through the very fact that it is fiction, allows us a belief, not a truth, but not a knowledge, but a belief that characters will live happily ever afterwards. That's the comic version of what the fictionality of fictional characters allows us to, um, how the fictionality of fictional characters allows us to respond to them emotionally. Their happiness can be more permanent because it's not real. The very fact that it's not real makes it permanent in fairy tales, in um, comedies, in works with happy endings. Um, the other side of this or so to sum that up, what we could say is the happy ending of a comedy is intensified by the unreality of 
its characters. The happy ending of a comedy is intensified by the fact that Elizabeth and Darcy never die, is intensified by the fact that Oberon and Titania never die, is intensified by the fact that whatever happy endings you're looking for, um, Mr. Gray, what, what's his first name? Is it John Gray? Um, Fifty Shades of? That those characters, what, you haven't read it? I haven't either. Has anyone read it? Fifty Shades of Gray? So what's his name? Christian. Christian Gay? Uh, Gray? <laughs> Not, well, people say he, some people do think he is gay. Um, Christian Gray? Okay. So, um, happy endings, romance endings, um, Yeah. Yay, happy ending. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. See, that's a happy ending, but eventually that phone will turn into an eye brick, um, or she'll lose it again, or it won't have enough memory, or whatever. So, um, and that's because it's real. Um, happy endings are only endings, or are endings that are all the happier because the characters in the happy endings are unreal. Tragic endings are all the sadder because the characters in the tragedy are unreal. If Lear were real, if Cordelia were real, if um, any characters in a tragedy were real, you would have something like the sense that okay, it may be that these terrible things are happening. On the other hand, um, at some point someone might bring Lear a chocolate bar and he'll have a little pleasure. Um, people do. Even people in mourning, give them chocolate, it makes their life better. Even if only for a second or two, it makes their life better. Chocolate does that. That's why chocolate sells so much. Um, in real life, happiness and sadness don't get sustained, but in fiction they do. And the great sadness of tragedy is that it's our sense that these characters are unreal, our sense that these characters are completely without power in the world, completely without the possibility of rescue. All of that is intensified by their unreality. Um, they themselves are dreams. At the end of Mark Twain's amazing, highly misanthropic, bitter, late novel, The Mysterious Stranger, the Satan character in that novel tells its main character for whom everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, and tons of things that could not go wrong have gone wrong. Finally, the Satanic character says, you think you exist, but you don't. You're just a thought floating through the universe and doomed to disappear. And that's the final um, turn of the screw. And the point is, it is a turn of the screw. That's how bad things are for that character. He's not real. So when we feel for a fictional character, as we do, when we feel for fictional characters, as we do, when we feel sad for fictional characters, <coughs> as we do, Perhaps the saddest moment are, or what Milton is imagining is the saddest moments are the moments when a fictional character cannot save another fictional character, when Lear cannot save Cordelia, 
when he kills the slave that is a hanging her, and yet he can't save her. And the saddest thing is that he can't save her, and what that means is he can't save her from unreality, and he can't save her from unreality because he too is unreal. His unreality contributes to our sadness for him, our sadness on behalf of him, contributes to what's unendurable. And that is what Milton is describing in describing Calliope's inability to save her son, nor could the muse defend her son. Um, if you remember the passage from Freud that I brought in the first week, the dream of the burning child, in the dream of the burning child you have a dream. And the dream is that the child needs help from his father, if it is a he. The child needs help from its father. Father, can't you see that I am burning? And the father then wakes up to try to save the child. But in waking up into reality, he can't save him. And yet the, he can't save him in the dream because the dream is a dream saying, wake up, I'm in the other room burning. But when he does wake up, there's no child there to be saved. That is what makes, says Freud, the dream so moving. Um, it's as moving as the empty dream of Calliope. Um, all right, let us go now to um, the end of book nine. And um, what happens after the fall, and again, I think that this is um, important in the sense of it's not being about either, um, not being about a permanent ending, which is what Adam and Eve imagine that the fall is going to consist in. What happens at the end, what happens in book nine is we get a moment of tragic commitment on Adam's part. Um, Adam, this is what we looked at at the end last time, breaks inner silence to himself and says, thinking alone, but apostrophizing Eve, although not so she can hear, addressing her who is present as though she is absent, as though she's not there, and therefore thinking only in his mind, he resolves to die. And so what he does is he resolves on a tragic ending for Paradise Lost. Eve has eaten the apple. Now Adam intends to follow her into death. And what he believes, what Eve has also um, been told, is that in the day you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. That is, eat the fruit and it will kill you. Eat the fruit and you will die immediately. So Adam does eat the fruit, expecting that the result of this will be that he will join Eve and they will die, and that that will be the tragic ending. They will enter into unreality, and they will be dead, and that will be the tragic ending. Um, instead, the first thing they do is they have really passionate sex, 
not the first time they have sex. It's important to understand that that's what one of Milton's, Milton makes it clear in Paradise Lost, that Adam and Eve have sex in um, Eden before the fall. But now they have a different kind of sex. Now suddenly they're aware of nakedness, so their sex becomes hot rather than healthy. Um, and hot sex is always better. Um, so they have sex, um, and for a moment they're happy, and then after being happy, they're not. They're full of recrimination. So what's happened here is Milton is taking two conventions of ending. A happy ending, which is they finally come together and they have pa absolute passion for each other. And a sad ending, they die. And he said of both of these, that's not the end. In fact, it's not the ending. In fact, they have this passionate sex, but after that, they immediately get angry at each other. And they start bickering and arguing for the first time. There are a couple of times in Paradise where they came close to argument, but never into real argument. Now they start blaming each other for what's happened, and they're angry. Um, so that the two possible endings, oh, how beautiful, we died together. We died in love with each other. Our last gesture was a gesture of love. So love and death combine. That tragic ending, the combination of love and death, or the happy ending, Adam passed the test. He showed how much he loved me. He really did show that he loved me dearer than eyesight, space, or liberty. Um, there, he showed it to me, and we got together, and now we were truly happy. No, they have sex, and then the sex is over, and then they start fighting. Um, how real is that? Um, and once they start fighting, things go from bad to worse. And one thing you could say is that what Adam has at least half understood, but only half understood, is that that's actually what would happen once he ate the apple. That is, that there is a powerful idea of marriage, which is codified in some versions of the marriage vows, the in sickness and in health for richer and for poorer um, part of the marriage vows, which are that when you are getting married to someone, it's not, you're not committing yourself to a life of um, all roses, all joy, all happiness, that marriage is not a happy ending by any means but that marriage is a commitment to all the difficulties of being with, being faithful to, being um, committed to another person, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do and to be. And that marriage, um, when the vows are for richer and for poorer in sickness and in health, etc., that those vows acknowledge that marriage is not a happy ending, nor is marriage a tragic ending at all, but marriage is an understanding of good and evil. 
That is that eating the apple of the knowledge of good and evil, the standard understanding of this in Genesis, the standard folkloric understanding of this in Genesis, is that eating the apple of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is discovering sexuality. Um, here's a phallic tree. Here are some heavy pendulous fruits hanging from the phallic tree. Here are um, some people um, finding a phallic snake leading them to this phallic tree and the phallic snake saying this tree will be good. They eat of the fruit of the tree and they find out that they're naked and this is the fall into real life, which is to say into the life in which we know we will die. Sex and death come together. That's the folkloric or mythological meaning of the story of the, that Genesis tells, that sex and death come together. When you're old enough to embrace sex, you're also old enough to know that you will die. And those two things happen at the same time, and it's bittersweet knowledge. For Adam and Eve, sex and death don't come together. They've already had sex. They already know sex. Milton is separating out those two forms of knowledge. That separation is um, not an obvious one. Some of you will know that Elizabethan and 17th century slang, really up until the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, the word die is slang for having an orgasm or for having sex. Um, John Donne has a poem where he makes a l dirty little joke um, to the woman he's addressing it to. We are tapers too and at our own cost die, by which he means we're like candles that um, burn out at our own cost because the light we give is what's burning us down. But it's also a theory that every time you have sex, your life um, expectancy goes down a tiny bit. So that whenever we have sex, we're also reducing our life expectancy. At our own cost, we die. Yeats, in Sailing to Byzantium, talks about the young in one another's arms, the birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. So the young in one another's arms, the birds in the trees, they're dying and they're singing and they're generations. That is, they're generating offspring. All those things go together. Um, Antony and Cleopatra has many, many jokes on dying um, as sexuality. You know, Barbas says of Cleopatra, if you leave her, she'll die. I've seen her die hundreds of times on far less occasion. And that's, you know, Barbas's dirty little joke. But the idea, again, is that sex and death go together. That's not Milton's idea. Milton's idea is that true marriage and Adam and Eve only become truly married after they've both eaten the fruit, married as we understand marriage, that true marriage is knowing that now you are committing yourself to a world of pain, but a world of commitment. The commitment means all the more because it's commitment to a world of pain and death. And because you're giving up much of your life for that commitment, giving up much of the only life that you have, to quote Proust.
the only life that you have. And that's what Adam and Eve are doing. So it's not the case that um, they think or wholly think that now it's either going to be comedy or tragedy. Either we ate the fruit and now it's all really good erotic um, happily ever after life or that we ate the fruit and now that we die it's rather we ate the fruit and now we will sometimes have sex and sometimes fight and eventually die and that's very realistic that's when Paradise Lost you could say undoes the difference between realism and unrealism it says that being unreal is the real experience of our real human lives. We, too, are characters like Adam and Eve, living a life with ups and downs, living a life where no happiness will last, but no sadness will be utterly intense. And yet that very fact is the saddest, or as Emerson will put it, the most unhandsome part of our condition. So, they have sex, then they bicker, then down comes Jesus and let's, uh, the Son of God, not yet Jesus, in book 10. And um, he, this is in um, book 10 around line 90. Down he descended straight. The speed of God's time counts not, though with swiftest minutes winged. So no matter how fast time is, there's no time that it takes God to appear to us. Now is the sun in western cadence low from noon, and gentle airs do at their hour to fan the earth now waked and usher in the evening cool, when he from wrath more cool came the mild judge and intercessor both to sentence man. So the question is, he from wrath more cool, does that mean that he is being icy in his wrath? Or does it mean that his wrath has already cooled? Of course the answer is yes. The voice of God they heard, that is Adam and Eve hear the voice of God now walking in the garden, direct quotation from Genesis, by soft winds brought to their ears while day declined, they heard and from his presence hid themselves among the thickest trees, both man and wife, till God approaching thus to Adam called aloud, Where art thou, Adam? Won't with joy to meet my coming seen far off. I miss thee here, not pleased, thus entertained with solitude where obvious duty erewhile appeared unsought. So again, all of us have felt being in trouble that way with our parents who don't yet know what we've done. But of course, God does know what they've done. But where are you? Um, and Adam answers at line 116, I heard thee in the garden, and of thy voice afraid, being naked, hid myself. To whom the gracious judge, without revile, replied, my voice thou oft hast heard and hast not feared, but still rejoiced. How is it now become so dreadful to thee that thou art naked who hath told thee? 
hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I gave thee charge that thou shouldst not eat? So how did you know you were naked? Did you eat that fruit? And then Adam tells the truth, except he doesn't. Or he tells a truth which is also a little bit of an excuse. He, give, he says, I did eat the fruit of the tree, starting at line 325. Oh, heaven, in Eve all straight this day. And the pun isn't underlined there, but it is all over Paradise Lost. What Adam says to Eve when she eats the fruit is, he says, Oh, Eve, in evil hour didst thou eat the fruit. So he makes the Eve evil pun and then he says of her that she is defaced, that she is deceived, diseaved, as well as deceived, defaced, deflowered, and now to death devote. So here, O heaven, in evil straight this day I stand before my judge, either to undergo myself the total crime or to accuse my other self the partner of my life. So I'm standing before you, and either I have to admit and say that I alone did it, or I have to accuse her, since really it was her fault. So if I don't just say, yeah, it was all my fault, then alas, I have to do something terrible, which is to accuse my other self, the partner of my life, who's failing while her faith to me remains. I should conceal and not expose to blame by my complaint. So I shouldn't really tell you that it was her doing, but strict necessity subdues me. So strict necessity subdues me. What do we know of necessity in Paradise Lost? The tyrant's plea. So I don't want to blame Eve for what happened. If, I could, if there was some way that I could avoid blaming Eve, I would avoid blaming Eve, but Eve and calamitous constraint lest on my head both sin and punishment, however insupportable, be all devolved. Though should I hold my peace, yet thou wouldst easily detect what I conceal. So I'm going to tell you it was really Eve's fault, um, and that actually shows that I'm kind of confessing everything, because I'm blaming her. This woman, whom thou madest to be my help? Hello? Oh, there's no hello there. This woman, whom thou madest to be my help? and gavest me as thy perfect gift, so good, so fit, so acceptable, so divine, that from her hand I could suspect no ill, and what she did, whatever in itself her doing seemed to justify the deed, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So this is a really bad moment on Adam's part. Um, he is um, blaming God and blaming Eve and saying, you know, I was just trying to do my best and you, get, you told me she was great and so I believed her. We know that's not true. As soon as he finds out that she's eaten the fruit, he knows that um, he should not do it. At least God doesn't want him to do it. He knows that's not true and he still does it. So his doing it is great. Is blaming Eve having done it? Not so much. And this is the worst moment between Adam and Eve. Now, and here's a question about Milton's feminism. Here's where, where um, the best thing you could say about Milton from a feminist perspective 
um, starts, and you can say a lot actually, in the second, after the fall, um, starts off here. God then turns to her and says, so having said, after um, sentencing Adam, he turns to Eve. So having said, he thus to Eve in few, say, woman, what is this which thou hast done? To whom sad Eve with shame nigh overwhelmed. So Adam is sore beset, but Eve is just sad. To whom sad Eve with shame now nigh overwhelmed, confessing soon, yet not before her judge bold or loquacious. So what does that mean that Adam was? Bold and loquacious before his judge. But she's not bold and loquacious. Thus Abash replied, the serpent me beguiled, and I did eat. So she doesn't blame Adam. She doesn't say, um, well, you know, you were treating him in a certain way and um, putting me down, and I wanted to show um, that I could do stuff too. She basically says, it was my fault. Adam says, well, I would say it was my fault, but really it was Eve's fault. When it comes to be Eve's turn, she shows much more courage than Adam has done. She says, the serpent fooled me, and I ate. I did. Not, oh, you made the serpent, and I thought all, your, all of your works were great, and I believed the serpent. No, it's just, the serpent me beguiled, and I did eat. Um, go now, later in Book 10, to how Adam and Eve interact when they decide what to do. And um, Eve is asking Adam not to hate her. And she is um, full of sorrow and full of appeal to Adam in her sorrow. Once again, she is taking the blame on herself. And it redounds extraordinarily much to her credit that she takes the blame on herself. Um, she weeps. And then Adam replies, um, and I'm sorry, what she says, I'm, I'm trying to go through too much of this now, but I'll just say it quickly then. Um, Adam complains about what's going to happen to them, which is that he and their descendants will die. Eve says, look, let me take the blame on myself. I'll go to God. I'll say, it really was my fault. Just kill me. Um, Adam says, that's never going to work, and everyone is going to hate me in the future. Um, so Adam, having sinned, is worried about his reputation. Eve, having sinned, wants to take all the blame herself. Then Eve has another idea. She says, since we've done this, let's not have children. That way, we won't bring death to anyone else if we have no children. That way, we alone will die. And dying alone will be better than bringing death to our children. And that's a strong, an extremely strong and powerful thing for her to say. This is um, a deeply difficult fact of human life is being aware of the death of others. Adam is only afraid his children will curse him. He's not sorry for them. 
that they will die. But Eve is sorry for non-existent beings, for the children who don't yet exist, that they will die. And she says, let's not have children. And she even goes on to say, and if we can't refrain because birth control hasn't been invented yet, and we haven't really figured out all the dirty stuff we could do, if we can't refrain from sex, we should kill ourselves so that we have no children, so that we end the species right now. Eve is showing considerably more courage than Adam after the fall. She takes the blame. She offers to take the blame again. She offers never to have children because she feels for those children. She offers to kill herself so as not to be trapped or not to be fooled or not to fall into the parent trap of having children. After the fall, before the fall, there's a lot to question in Milton's depiction of Eve. After the fall, Eve is far and away the superior character. Um, and that's a strong thing to notice. Finally, just turn to the last page since we have our usual minute. Yes, we don't. Yes, we don't. Um, Michael shows Adam the future. We get a quick summary of the rest of the Bible. And then um, in book 12, this is go to line um, 605. Um, Michael shows him the whole future, and then they're about to be leave Eden for good. Um, and he ended, and they both descend the hill, the hill from which Adam has seen the future. He ended, and they both descend the hill. And then this amazing moment, descended Adam to the bower where Eve lay Sleeping ran before, but found her waked. So they both go down the hill, but Adam immediately runs away from Michael, leaves him behind, so that he can get to Eve as fast as possible. And then they are kicked out of Eden, and the famous last lines, the world was all before them. Where to choose? Hang on to that phrase, the world was all before them where to choose their place of rest, and providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps, and slow through Eden took their solitary way. The amazing last lines of the poem, which makes them human like us, completely human like us, taking our own solitary way with wandering steps and slow. Okay, hope for Wednesday. And um, papers to Courtney or to me, depending on who your section leader is.